The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We're continuing to look through the book uh, of Exodus, uh, of our story, redemption's story, redemption's journey, and watching and looking how God ha- has moved through the people of Israel, and He has redeemed them. They've been in bondage. Uh, They were in servitude for 400 plus years in Egypt, uh, and they then cried out to God. He brought to them a deliverer in Moses who came and led them out with the incredible plagues and all of the movements through the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptians. And he was bringing them. Uh, Now he's led them through uh, the desert for several weeks, and they have arrived at Mount Sinai. They've arrived at Mount Horeb, same mountain, different names. And they've come to the place where God is now going to establish his relationship with them in very black and white terms. It is going to be stark and there is going to be no opportunity for questioning who is in control and what the expectations are of anybody who comes into relationship with him. I was having a conversation recently with a, a young man, and he asked the question. He said, which is the most important part of uh, Exodus? Is it the uh, Exodus event itself, going through the Red Sea and getting out, or is it the Ten Commandments? And I thought that was a great question, and it led me to really think. And the reality is both are incredibly important, but the Ten Commandments make no sense without the Exodus. The Exodus makes no sense without the Ten Commandments, and so to grade them may be difficult, but what we're going to see now is after God's redemption, after God's exodus of leading the people out, he now gives them the law, that he establishes this covenant relationship with the people, and he is saying to them, and in creating this relationship that uses the word covenant, and it's a word that we don't use very often in our day and age. We've lost it. You may have a covenant of marriage. Uh, But that really doesn't make sense because it seems so easy uh, in our day and age that you can set that covenant aside and move on uh, from marriage. Uh, It's probably more difficult to make a color change in your neighborhood based on your plantation's covenants than it is to break a covenant of marriage. Because that's how we understand covenants. That you get to remain a member of this neighborhood and community as long as you obey the stipulations of said and described covenant. And if you break them, there will be fines levied against you or you will eventually have to move out if you continue to break them. So we're going to be looking at covenantal language because to understand a covenant is to really understand all of Scripture, not just the Old Testament. To understand the covenant uh, is going to inform how you understand who Jesus Christ is, what his ministry among us was, uh, and how that continues to have application in our lives. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. We're going to be reading uh, pieces of this. I'm going to speak to all of it within the sermon, uh, but only going to be reading uh, different components of it from the beginning and the end. But we believe this. This is God's very word. May he speak to us today by his spirit through it. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out to the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. 
the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so Moses called the elders to himself and began to speak to the people. And God spoke of coming down and that the people couldn't touch the mountain. And we're going to pick up. And it says in verse 20, I know I'm jumping on you a little bit. And it says, the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain. And Moses went up and the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of it. Amen. What in the world is a covenant? We've talked about it just in cursory terms, but we're going to unpack uh, today what a covenant is, what exactly is a covenant, and how does it relate to us uh, as we relate to God. Then we're going to look at this covenant, and we're going to see that in the covenant relationship that we have with God, there is a plot twist. Uh, There is, I don't know if you love plays and movies and books uh, and different stories like that, but you're going along, and you're thinking that you're tracking, and then all of a sudden there is a twist, and you go, wow. I didn't see that one coming. And it throws off everything else. The implications of that twist uh, inform the rest of your reading uh, of that story or the rest of your enjoyment uh, in that film or play. And so there's a twist within this. And we're going to look at what this twist is for us. And we're going to see that after that twist, after it, we're going to ask a question uh, and we're going to find that the answer to that question uh, is that Christ fulfills the covenant for us. And then finally, we're going to ask another question. If Christ has done all this, why should we obey any of the covenant expectations at all? So we're going to be looking at some things which lead us to natural questions along the way and then hopefully begin to ask those questions. And I want this to allow you to do something, and that's this, be investigated. Allow yourself to ask questions of God's word, to allow your heart, to allow your emotions and your mind to lead you to a question. It's okay to ask the question. It's okay to say, this is what I've read, this is what I've studied, this seems to be where it's leading me, wow, and then Either answer the question yourself through Scripture, seeking God on that, or go and find somebody and say, I've been studying, I've been doing this, this is the question that I'm coming to, and it seems to be leading to this conclusion. Is this the right conclusion? Does that make sense? 
Be investigators. Be detectives of God's word. And allow yourself to ask questions and challenge yourself to ask better questions. So the first thing, and we're going to get to this first question, but the first thing we're seeing is what is a covenant? What is a covenant? It says that we're in a covenant relationship with God. A covenant is said to be uh, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. That's one definition, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. That basically a, a, a covenant is made between two parties. And one party is the greater party, and the other party is the lesser party. And so what we're going to see is there are uh, five components to uh, a covenant. There are the covenant parties. There are the covenant stipulations or the rules and regs uh, within that. Uh, There are the blessings of the covenant. There are the curses of the covenant. And there is a covenant meal uh, that is taken uh, by all the parties involved. So first, who are the parties? Well, there's a sovereign. uh, There's one who is greater and there's one who is lesser. So in our story, it says that the, the covenant was made between God, Yahweh, the sovereign God, and his people Israel, us, the lesser people. And so if you were in a country and you were overrun by a king, the king would come in and he would say this, I am the the Assyrian army, I'm the greatest king in all the world, I'm going to come in, I've taken your land, I'm occupying Hilton Head, I'm occupying the low country, I'm taking it over, and you will be under my control, uh, that I have absolute access to this, that you are a defeated people. And I will protect you. I will have my garrisons and my outposts there. I'll protect you. I will provide for you all the infrastructure you need of roads uh, and of sewage and of food and all of those things. And I will protect you from any of the opposing armies that may come in and want to take the low country from you. But here's what you're going to do in response. You're going to obey certain stipulations. And we'll look at those in a minute. But there's a sovereign. There is a party who is greater than the other party. And in this picture that we see God throughout the course of uh, Exodus chapter 19, God comes and he describes himself in terms that are shaking terms. It said that God came down and descended upon Mount Sinai and the mountain shook at its foundations. I don't know if you've ever experienced an earthquake. I personally have not. But evidently it is one of the most alarming And disheartening and scary things that you can ever be a part of. Because the very foundation of the world shakes. And it says that God thundered and he came down. And it said smoke covered the mountain. And that there was a voice and flashes of light. And it was an awe-inspiring event. Why was God doing that? He was establishing himself as the sovereign. And he spoke. And it says that all the people heard his voice. Why was he doing that? To say that he's sinister? To say that he's scary? And no one should mess with him? No, he was saying, listen, I am God. And I am not to be trivialized within your world. Too many of us in our day and age have trivialized God. We have made him small. We have made him manageable. We have, we have taken from him uh, components of who he is because we say that they're unpalatable. But God is coming and he's saying, I'm the sovereign in this covenant relationship. I am the king and I am not to be messed with. And then the other party in there is us. <laughs> we relate to whom in the story? Israel, a group of slaves who have been brought out by God, led across the wilderness, established by God, fed by God, taken care of by God. We are surely the weaker party in this relationship. 
We are the ones who are looking at the vassal, at the sovereign, excuse me, the suzerain, and saying to him, we agree. We, we understand who you are. So those are the parties that are involved. Well, what are the stipulations? What are the rules? Every covenant, and I'm going to do this quickly, every covenant has rules, and the rules are this. I'm going to protect you. I'm the king, and I'm going to protect you. I'm going to give you these things, and I'm going to do these things for you if you pay taxes, if you honor me, if you worship me, if you do these things. That's how it worked in a general government setting. And if you don't, if you don't pay your taxes, if you try to have a coup, if you hang out with my enemies and try to ally yourself with them, uh, then you are going to have a problem with me. But there's rules that you have to follow in order to be blessed. In God's covenant with us, it's the same way. For I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. Do not make for yourself an image graven of me. Do not take my name lightly or in vain. Do honor one day out of seven a Sabbath and rest and worship me. Honor your father and mother, do not commit murder, do not, and it goes on and on, and then there was the law, the entire section of chapter 20 to 24 is the picture of the stipulations of the law, it's God saying, here is your requirement, folks, I'm the sovereign, you're not, here's what it's going to take for you to remain in relationship with me, so those were the stipulations, and then after the stipulations, there were blessings, if you obey, then I bless you, If you obey, then I bless you. And we've talked about that a little bit already, but God is saying, if you obey, I bless you with my presence. I bless you in this way. He gave three in this section. He says, I bless you in this way. If you obey me, you'll be my treasured possession. You may go, well, it already says in that same verse that God owns all things. What is a treasured possession? It's a unique word in the Hebrew. And it's one that's lost. It's basically saying this. The king or the sovereign uh, owns all things. The streets, the roads, the everything. It's all his. The treasury, it's all his. But he has his own personal store. He has those things which are treasured to him. It, it would be as if the king said, I own every person in the kingdom. I can have any boy, any girl. They could be considered my children. But I have my own son. And I have my own daughter. Oh, and they're my treasured possession. You mess with one of the other kids and I'll be upset with you. You mess with one of my kids and you will see my full strength. The treasured possession. That thing which is very important to you. And it says that if we obey God, we get to become his treasured possession. What an awesome image that is. also says that you're going to become a whole a kingdom of priests. He says, I'm going to establish you as a new kingdom, and you're going to be a kingdom of priests. And you go, priests? How am I a priest? We don't have priests. I'm not Roman Catholic. I don't, I'm not Episcopal. I don't understand. No, he says, we're all priests because the function of a priest was to lead people to God. The function of a priest was to communicate uh, the truth about God and the truth of God to the world around. And it says that if you obey, one of the blessings that you have is you become a kingdom of priests. That's part of who we are. That we get the privilege of ministry, of sharing with the world around us who God is through all of uh, our life and all of our ministries. That's the other. And then the third blessing that he says in there, he says, you're a treasured possession. Uh, you are a kingdom of priests and you're a holy nation. He says, you're going to be a nation. You're a new people group. You are a new city within the city. You are a new culture within the culture. You are a new town within the town. You are a new person within the greater group of people. And you are holy and different. You are called out. You are different than everybody else. 
You realize that, right? For most of your life, you have worked so hard to fit in. Most of your life, you have worked so hard so as not to draw attention to yourself. And God is saying, part of the blessing, if you follow me, is that you will be absolutely distinct and different from the world around you. That's part of it. You're going to be so different that it's going to lead people to see me, and they're going to want to find out about me. So that's part of the blessing, that you're holy, sacred, set apart, and different. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that you're distinct from everything else around. And so the church, as an aside, is a gathering of called out holy ones, saints, priests, brought together collectively. All of you are here, so I'm preaching to the choir. But there's some of you in relationship with other people who say that they're followers of Jesus Christ and want to have absolutely nothing to do with the established church. I can follow Jesus on my own terms. I don't need to have the church in order uh, to be a part uh, of God's work. And the answer to that is that's absolutely wrong. God gathers his people together to be a part of something larger than themselves. So those are the blessings. The curses? Ah, Curses, and we got to move quickly on all this. Curses, this is, the, this is the rated R version of stuff. Here's the curses. You heard us, uh, the reading of Scripture from uh, Genesis chapter 15, where it says that he took a heifer, three heifers and three uh, goats and all the different things, and it says that they split their bodies and they cut them. And think about it, guys. This, this is nasty because they didn't have the kind of machinery that we have today, but they hacked them to pieces. And there were the pieces of bloody, nasty, I love some of the faces you're making. Ugh, that's it. It's graphic. Some of the young boys are going, cool, I like this whole Christian thing. And, but it was graphic. And there was blood everywhere. And basically what the sovereign was saying to the vassal, if you disobey me, I've already told you what you get if you obey me, but if you disobey me, so will it happen to you. Blood is going to be shed if you disobey me. And the king and the vassal would come together and they would walk in between the bloodied pieces of the heifer and of the goats and of the lambs and of the birds and all of those as a very vivid and graphic and extreme picture of the curses. For God is saying this, if you disobey me on one count of all of my law, one count. You are guilty of the entirety of the law, and you will be split. Blood will be shed. And he also said, if I, God, the king, break any of my promises, would I be split? But we know that God has always been faithful to his promises. And so that's the graphic nature. And so all of this was done, and then the king would invite the vassal into a meal. And we say, now we're going to have a meal together and we're going to consecrate this agreement, this covenant, by having a covenant meal together. And that's what you see in chapter 24 in several of the verses there where it says, the elders of, of the people of Israel went up to the mountain and they had a meal with God. You go, a meal with God. It was a very intimate, very important transaction that was taking place at that meal. So now you guys all understand covenant theology, correct? You got it down pat. You got all the five points of that. Go home and figure out how it applies to your life. Right? What in the world? Well, it sounds like this. If I obey, then I get blessing. Isn't that kind of the conclusion you came to in all of that? Ah, but this is where the twist happens. This is, the, I, this is where Scripture, it gets really, really exciting. 
uh, sometimes you talk with somebody in their particular professional field uh, and they tell you something in their professional field that's really exciting and you go, I don't get it. This is kind of one of those things in my professional field I get really excited about and I hope you go, I get it too. This is awesome. There's a twist. Look what happened uh, in chapter 19, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And then you're going to flip over to chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you get it? Do you see it? He redeemed you before he gave you the stipulations. I have redeemed you from Egypt. I have already brought you out. I have borne you up on eagle's wings. I swooped in and I as an eagle, the imagery of protector and the imagery of rescuer. I have swooped in and I have scooped up helpless Israel. I have scooped up helpless Bill McCutcheon. And I have taken him and I have redeemed him from the house of Egypt, from the land of bondage. And I have brought him to this place. I have done it for you. I've already redeemed you and I haven't asked you to do anything yet. Isn't that awesome? Try that again. Isn't that awesome? Okay, I know you don't believe me on that, but that's really awesome in this way. Because you know what God's saying? You can't obey enough to get redeemed. You can't do enough good for me to come and rescue you. I have to rescue you first. And that puts the law in perspective because every other religion in the world, every other thought life in the world, philosophy or anything else says this, you get perfect, you get good, you work hard, and you'll get to the place that you want to be. Think about it. Ancient cultures had ziggurats. They they had temples that were built on mountains. And you would ascend up the mountain. This is your old history, ancient Near Eastern history. I was a history major. Again, I get excited about stuff like this. And you go, why in the world were there ziggurats? And who cares what they were uh, and all of that stuff? Well, it was people ascending to God. You would ascend the mountain, and then you would make a sacrifice on the mountain to try to get God to act. You would go up on the hills to Baal and to Asherah, and you would have an explicit sexual relationship with one of the prostitutes, male or female, to try to get Baal and Asherah to work on your behalf. And God is saying this, hey, guess what? You don't have to ascend the mountain. I'm coming down to you. Because you could never be good enough to come up my mountain. You could never entice me to come and to be with you. So I'm coming down to you. Isn't that good news? Because some of you are absolutely worn out from trying to be good enough for God to accept you. And I'm here to tell you today, stop. You'll never be good enough. What you have to do is hit and hit and hit again the prologue to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, have no other gods before me. Do you see, it's usually flipped. Have no other gods before me. Don't do these things. Do these things. And then I'll get you out of the house of Egypt. But this is the twist in the plot. And you go, this is awesome. I get all the benefits knowing that I'm going to break The stipulations. Again, let me ask you again. How many of you have messed up on the Ten Commandments so far today? 
Today, I, I did today. Already, I did today. Because I'm more concerned about certain things than I am about God, so therefore I have a God in front of Him. I'm more concerned uh, about certain things, and therefore I'm serving Him. Or I've taken His name lightly in certain ways. Already today, you almost heard a pastor cuss when that squirrel came running out uh, of this thing. Uh, and that's not what taking it, uh, you know, but it's just like, have no, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. And it was right there. And so then I thought, oh my goodness, I thought the word. That's just as bad, I guess. I need something to help me here because I know that I'm a constant covenant breaker. But yet God has already redeemed me. How did that happen? That leads us to this question. So it begs the question, if your salvation is based on the unmerited favor of God who saved you from your slavery to sin and death and bondage to the fall, that he saved you not because of what you had done or what you will do. He saved you simply because of his gracious and merciful nature to show his love and that your obedience doesn't merit his favor. It begs the question, how did I get the blessings? If obedience was demanded and my disobedience seems to undo that, how did I get the blessings of being his treasured possession and a priesthood and a holy people? Ah, Christ fulfilled the work that you couldn't. Christ fulfilled it. In the reading that, you, uh, that we had from Genesis 15, part of that was that, Mo- that Abram went to sleep. And that it said that there was a smoking pot and a flame that was going around throughout the course of those broken, bloodied pieces of the heifer. And it was as if God was making the covenant and Abraham was going to be the one getting blessed. But God was walking through with Christ and he was saying this, Abram and all of his descendants will get the blessing, but son, Christ, you're going to have to get the curse. Though through your perfect obedience to the law, through your perfect obedience to everything that I've ever laid out in all time, that through your perfect love for me, your perfect love for others, that you should deserve the blessings of heaven itself, I am going to give you the curse. You're going to be split. You're going to be cut down. You will be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. So when Christ was seated in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was with the disciples and he was looking to know what was going to happen the next day uh, on the cross. I've told you this before, but you need to hear it. There have been human beings who have suffered worse physically than Christ ever suffered. That is a true statement. So he wasn't all that upset about the physical part of what he was experiencing. His cry to God wasn't, God, take away the beatings. It was, Father, if you can take away this cup of wrath. If you would be willing to not make me drink all the curses of the covenant, would you do that? And his father said, no. And Christ said, not my will, but yours be done. And he drank every last drop on your behalf. Because here is how we know that took place. 
Moses with the elders in chapter 24, after the covenant had been ratified and all the stipulations and all of this stuff, he comes to the people and he says in verses 3 through 8, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, I love this, all the words of the Lord has spoken, we will do. Really? What a silly statement. All of them, really? What they should have said was, most of them we will try, but we're probably going to fail on a lot of them. But they said all the words we're going to do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord, which we have in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes. He sent young men all throughout the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood And threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. What was he doing? How gross. All these dead animals and there was some put on the altar and then he took up basins, it says. And the word that's used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Hebrew, it said, and he baptized them with the blood. He sprinkled them with the blood. If you've ever wondered why Presbyterians don't dunk you, it's because the idea of baptism is saying he baptized you with the blood, that you were covered by the blood of the one who took your place. It is the blood of the covenant that is covering you because I know that you're not going to fully be able to obey. And you go, that's cool, that's wonderful Old Testament stuff. Oh, but it's so New Testament. And Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, having eaten the covenant meal of Passover, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is given for you, broken and laid out. And he took the cup after the meal. He said, this cup is the cup of what? The new covenant in my blood. Shed for the remission of your sins, you covenant-breaking people. I'm going to take the curse so you get the blessing. If you've ever wondered how you get to go to heaven, that's it. You don't get to try to climb a mountain. You don't get to try to be better than the person next to you. We don't play that game. We look to Christ and we see in Christ this beautiful one who came and bore our sins. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the children of God. Christ, the righteousness of God. Christ was split for us. Hebrews 10, and you need to read it. And now Hebrews is going to come alive to you. Because you're going to read it and go, oh, we enter through a more precious sacrifice that is more powerful than even the bloods of heifers. And you go, bloods of heifers. Oh, Christ's blood. It's more precious. It speaks a more powerful truth. Then it says, Bill McCutcheon, you're a covenant breaker. You disobey my rules all the time. Yet Christ covers you. You get my blessings. You're my treasured possession. Isn't that awesome? 
We could end there. But I'm going to ask one more question. If that's true, why then try to obey any rule God gives us? Right? If Christ did it all, and it was unmerited and given to me, why then should I want to be holy and blameless at all? It seems to me that I could say, ha ha, got my fire insurance. I got Jesus. Now I can do whatever I want to do, right? Because I'm covered. I got my card. I'm covered by here, right here. So it begs the question, why be holy at all? Hebrews 10, verse 26 and 29. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without, punish, without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? It's okay to be led to that question of why then be holy? Why then obey? It's okay to be led to that question. But if your conclusion is, I get to go do whatever I want to do. If it is the thought of an adolescent who says, hey, this is pretty cool. I got baptized as a kid. I got rebaptized at summer camp. I walked the aisle. I went to communicants class. I'm in. Now I can do whatever I want to do from age 15 to 22. And it's awesome. Or for the adult who says, I got my fire insurance. I've got enough of Jesus. It doesn't matter how I live. If that's your conclusion, you are trampling underfoot. The beautiful sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it is exposing your heart. And what it is exposing is this. You don't belong. It's incredibly black and white. Because when you see what Christ has done for you. It does not lead you to a thin Christianity. And a weak piety. It leads you to live your life above reproach. To simply say to God, look at what Christ has done on my behalf. And all I've got to do is this, not lie, not cheat, not steal, not cheat on my wife, uh, not take taxes, not pay to do whatever. You mean that's all? Oh, in comparison to the greatness of what I've been given. So if you take lightly that, you should pause. And if you see someone in your life and in your family who is taking lightly the things of God, pause with them. I talk to a lot of young people and I see them living lives in a way. But when I ask them and I say, do you love Christ? Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. And I say, that's fascinating. Because there is absolutely nothing in your life other than your empty words which make me think that's the truth.
Oh, Bill, you're so harsh. Boys will be boys. Teenagers will be teenagers. Young people will be young people. I don't think so. Or when I talk to a man who's in a marriage with his wife and he's going out on a boys' night out and he's talking and flirting and doing all the things or he's looking at pornography and he goes, hey, I'm just window shopping. You don't get it. God's people don't window shop. They want to raise the bar of purity and holiness, not see how far we can get away with things. So be careful. And we'll end here today. If you've been trying to earn your way up the mountain to get to God, stop right now and look at Christ. Look at Christ and see that he ascended the mountain on your behalf. Or if you're in a group of people who's saying you take very lightly the beauty of God's law and you've dismissed it to a point of where you say, I don't need to have that. I'm saved by grace, not by law. Stop. Because if you don't love the law of God, it probably means you don't love his son. So pause in both places and see this. Christ. Christ. He said, I am the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are willing to be engaged in a relationship with us, knowing full well that we will break your law, that we will mess up. And you knew that so well that you sent Christ into the world. And we thank you that we are saved by his love and merit and not our own. For some who are struggling here today, I pray that you would meet them. Father, that you would minister to them. For others who are taking lightly the things that pertain uh, to the gospel, I pray that you arrest their thoughts and their actions and turn them back. And for each of us, the reason that we pursue holiness would not be the fear set behind us, but it would be the beauty of the love in Christ set before us. Would Christ be all in all to us? This we pray in his name. Amen.